0: Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. Welcome to Season 8. And to get us started, we have one of the world's foremost thinkers and experts on energy, He's a co-founder of Cambridge Energy Research Associates and currently serves as vice chair of S&P Global. He's written half a dozen books, of which three on energy, starting with the prize, which won him a Pulitzer Prize. Then there was The Quest and most recently, The New Map. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Dan Yergin on Cleaning Up. So Dan, Welcome to Cleaning Up. Thank you so much for sharing some time with us here today.
1: Glad to join you, Michael.
0: I always start by asking, where are you calling in from? So um, you're you're presumably in Washington right now?
1: I'm in in Washington, D.C., where I'm placed. Exactly.
0: And what better place to uh, what better observatory um, to watch all of the extraordinary things going on in this uh, in this 2022, which is such a such a bizarre and, and strange year in energy
1: yeah it, well in energy and in general washington dc really is a cauldron and uh, all of, so many of the different forces converge and so many different people converge here now um
0: 2022 do you have any analogs i mean you are the great historian of the energy sector i think it's fair to say um and we'll talk about uh, the most recent of your books, The New Map, in a moment. But going back all the way through till the 1970s and beyond, are there any analogs that you could draw on just to uh, to help us sort of make sense of what's going on?
1: Well Yes and no. I mean, in a way, no, because we've never had this kind of globalised, complicated world. But I did think, you know, as the crisis was unfolding in the first part of 2022, I was thinking, well, the only analog was the 1970s, and it's not a very good analog because that was just about oil. This has been oil, natural gas, coal, renewables, uranium. Uh, but there were certain similarities. That is that the, the, the you, you had first an energy crisis because of underinvestment, and you had tight markets going in, and really that was the basis of the crisis, and then that intersected With a geopolitical crisis, a war, and uh, and then that the world afterwards was different than the world before, and certainly we know that the world afterwards, or the world we're already in, is very different from the world at the beginning of uh, 2022. I mean, I mean, the world at beginning 2023, the beginning of 2023, would not have been expected at the beginning of 2022.
0: You in the new map, you actually wrote a lot about Ukraine, and you actually think of it as one of the instabilities. You actually wrote very explicitly about Russia's uh, unresolved, at least in Russia's mind, unresolved borders. Um, do you, take you know, do, is that something that gives you pride when you look at that? Do you think, yep, I kind of, I kind of got that one?
1: Well, it gives me shivers actually to see it because. You know, I did write that Ukraine was going to blow up between Russia uh, and the West. I didn't think it would go on this kind of war, and would, that would not have been imagined. Uh, but I think it did. It did go to what you really said—that the reason this happened is, you know, not the reasons that the Russians give about NATO. I mean, that there was a threat to Russia. The reason is that Putin refused to accept the. Uh, settlement at the end of the Cold War. He simply refused to accept it. He refused to accept the end of the uh, Soviet uh, Union. He said it was the biggest tragedy of the 20th century, which when you think about what happened with Nazi Germany or other things, that you know, that's a pretty big reach there. And he was determined and he continually said that um, Ukraine was not a country. He kept saying it all the time. And then you could see the interaction between that and the struggles over natural gas. And those were the things that led me to say, just looking at the pattern, that where these trends were going, these trends were going to go to a conflict.
0: When you, and you talk about, you talked about this kind of Novorossiya, this idea that, that um, uh, P- President Putin is trying to reassemble the, the empire around a, a, um, the around Russia, so to reconstruct maybe not exactly the Soviet Union, but something along those lines. So you you wrote about that. When you reread it, do you think that it gives an explanation for more of particularly Russia's behavior in the kind of decades previously, which maybe we all missed?
1: That's a very uh, interesting question. I mean, I think it is important to listen to what people say, and he was saying this. And uh, you know, after all, he had taken Crimea in 2014, and that had kind of just been accepted. And I think you know, he would say he wrote an essay in the summer of 2021, or somebody wrote an essay for him, a 5,000-word essay saying Ukrainians and Russians are brothers, uh, the same people. So pretty strong message that he was sending. Of course, it has a bitter irony when you look at the rain of missiles uh, and drones that Russia's now been sending down on the civilian population of uh, of Ukraine.
0: Moving from this point forwards, um, to I've written about um, after Ukraine the great clean energy acceleration. So, you know, in my world, I look at the implications for the shift towards clean energy, that's kind of front and center in my mind, as I think about the, what 2022 pivots into. Um, do you think that that's a fair characterization or do you, do you see the implications of this uh, crisis? You know, are you, are you sort of focused more on what it will do
1: within the broader energy sector? I think the answer, Michael, it's both. I think that uh, we've seen the rediscovery of energy security It had fallen off the table for different reasons. The United States, you know, you had, I think it was eight presidents I counted who kept saying the U.S. needed to be energy independent and it seemed a big joke, never happened. The shale revolution happened and that meant that people didn't worry about energy security. Europe was different. Europe thought, you know, it can depend on Russian gas, it can, you know, it has its advances on climate, didn't need to worry about energy security. The country that never forgot about energy security is Japan for obvious reasons, and to some degree, China too. But uh, among the other countries, it was pretty forgotten. It's back on the agenda. And I think what you see is really moving on two paths. One, as you say, an acceleration of renewables and an acceleration not only uh, because of climate, but as you pointed out in some of your writings, because it's also a form of energy security, it's a form of diversification. But the other is uh, a reappreciation of uh, conventional resources. And when you see the German Germany going ahead with five uh, uh, natural gas uh, uh, floating regasification facilities, building a new regasification facility in two hundred days—normally it takes years or forever to get something done in Germany of that nature—you uh, see the Chancellor of Germany flying off to uh, Senegal and Gutter in search of uh, LNG. You realize that there's a recognition that things don't happen overnight. And you don't want to create shortages uh, that lead to turmoil or to political uh, disadvantage. So I think, I think you're quite right about the acceleration. Certainly, that's what's reflected in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. But I think at the same time, it's also recognition that you need conventional resources. And by the way, I see a different perspective in developing countries. I see and I write about this in the new map. And I think it's important to understand that there's a new North South divide on these issues. Uh, not the North South divide of the 70s and 80s, which was about the price of commodities, but about the nature of the energy transition.
0: Right now, what I'd like to do is move on to the new map. And I'm going to ask you in a second to lay out the thesis, because we've kind of started to unpack it. Uh, but I want to give you the chance to kind of put it in the frameworks that you used in the new map. But just before we do that, um, you, the, the new map is. Is it really the third of a trilogy? Because certainly my first awareness of your writing was The Quest, uh, sorry, was, was uh, The Prize. Um, you've written see, quite a I few see, books, but I, I, I see The it. Prize, The Quest, and The New Map as a trilogy. I mean, is that how you thought about it when you sort of first started to type the first, the opening words of The Prize? Well, I think um,
1: I didn't think of it, I thought of it as that the world has changed so much and it literally, it started out looking at how maps of energy supply and demand were changing. Uh, that Those were the things that really led me to think about the book. It was only afterwards that you know, I started to think about it as a trilogy. Uh, but there are two other books I did that I think sort of add to it. And I don't know if you have five books, what it adds up to. My first book actually was about the origins of the, of the Soviet-American Cold War or the Soviet-American-European Cold War. And I never thought I would be writing another book about the origins of the Cold War. And that was part of what I, when I was writing the new map, I thought I'm writing about a new Cold War. And of course, now that language has become more common. And then I did a book uh, called uh, Commanding Heights about the kind of changing balance between state and market. And that is- Joe Joe Stanislas, I I believe, Yes. yes. And that book, and then we turned that into a PBS series. And that, the BBC series, and that, too, figures in, in there. So those themes of those other two books are in the new map. But I think at the end of the day, as you say, um, I didn't set out to say I'm going to write a trilogy, but I guess uh, the facts of the matter indicate that I did.
0: Very good. And, um, and certainly there is a sort of narrative thread, uh, but picking up, as you say, the, uh, the, the Cold War issues, the commanding heights... Uh, but then you know particularly the energy writing of the prize the quest the new map sort of fits together very nicely for me okay so so if you can summarize please the the thesis of the new map and there's it's important to point out that there's been two editions so maybe we start with the original thesis and then we get on to the uh, the epilogue the new update
1: yeah yeah i think that um the um the thesis really was that you had a new map of energy and geopolitics coming together. That is the thesis. And then I explored it through a series of maps. America's map basically around shale and more revolutionary, I think, than people may recognize and how it changed the world in ways that people didn't and haven't recognized. I mean, to think, Michael, today that LNG, US LNG is now one of the foundations of European energy security. You would not have said that at the beginning of 2022, and yet that was what was happening. Then the second map is the one you've already talked about, Russia's map, which is really Putin wanting to redraw the map, and, and Russia as an energy superpower, and one thing things we can talk about is Russia still going to be an energy superpower, and that's something you've touched on in, in your most recent essay. Uh, the third, of course, is China's map, which is about... Um, There's a map of the South China Sea. There's a map of the Belt and Road. And what do those mean? And again, what does it mean in terms of energy? And there, the question is, what happened to what I call the WTO consensus, which was the globalization consensus. We're all in it together. And now it's all about great power competition, almost a pre-World War I quality to it. And then there's the new maps of the Middle East. And that's about, you know, when you see Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, you know, having some of the cheapest solar energy in the world, uh, that's part of a new map. And uh, and kind of changing the economy. And of course, ISIS tried to change the map, really eliminate the state system that had been created after World War One in the Middle East. And then, of course, there's I couldn't resist this title, Roadmap of the Future about the electric car and autonomous vehicles. And then um, And then Climate Map, which is really about the question, and I think we'll talk about it more, is about what is an energy transition and how different is this energy transition? So the difference, the the new edition, which is behind you, the paperback, is really an update uh, for the Biden Biden years, let's call it that way, where we are today. And uh, a US administration that came in only focused on climate, but suddenly found that it had to really worry about oil supply too the degree, although they said it wasn't for that reason, that the president actually went to Saudi Arabia. And then, Michael, this is a very funny thing. Um, length is an issue, and I did not want the new map to be as long as, as the quest or as long as the prize. And I wrote this section in uh, the about China's map, the section called um, The Four Ghosts Who Haunt the South China Sea. And the publisher said, oh, this is a little long, let's take it out. So painfully took it out, published it in the Atlantic, and then I put it back in the paperback, but as an appendix. And it's really meant to be a warning about, you know, you said that the book was a warning about what was going to happen with Russia, Ukraine. Obviously, it's a warning about the risk that now exists in a world of great power competition and the and the lessons. And so that's the change from the hardcover uh, to the to the paperback.
0: Let me say, that is actually my favorite piece of the book, is this, it is just this, I mean, it, it is a beautiful piece of writing, um, beautifully constructed around these four ghosts, these four characters whose thinking has influenced both the Chinese and the non-Chinese um, views of the South China Sea, which, you know, what you're doing is essentially laying down another marker saying, this could blow up. This could be the next equivalent of the Ukraine exactly. crisis.
1: Exactly. And one of the four ghosts is Grotius, uh, the Hugo Grotius, who was this Dutch lawyer of several centuries ago, who's considered the father of the, the law of the sea. And ironically, the law of the sea was born out of a, a uh, military collision in the South China Sea hundreds of years ago. I mean, it's just the ironies of history.
0: Well, well there, there is there is nothing completely new about anything. It, it, it's all just uh, the same issues coming around again and again. Um, so it, it starts in the South China Sea, and who knows? Uh, and, and of course, we have to hope that it doesn't. Uh, that it doesn't. Um, you know, it, it, I'm always looking for what could get more weird than 2022 or more disturbing than 2022. And of course, there are candidates there, both with with uh, Taiwan and the South huh. China Sea. I think, I think
1: that's you know that's the big issue now is what is does this relationship between China and the United States stabilize or not and uh, and Michael so much and I really thought about it in terms of 2022 and all of Putin's miscalculations all of which were rational but all of which were wrong and if you look at history it is so littered with miscalculations where people make mistakes and then unintended consequences The First World War was supposed to be over in a few weeks, and it went on for four years. And uh, so you you have to worry about Taiwan and what consequences if people make mistakes or misunderstand the circumstances of what's happening. And uh, you can, you know, uh, it's clear before our eyes.
0: That one is chilling on a human basis, but on an economic basis, if you look at Taiwan's uh, market share in these critical chips. I mean, if, if this is uh, uh, doesn't bear thinking about. It. There are no washing machines. There are no cars made. There's a, It's just if yeah. if if that. I mean, one... and
1: and that's really, you know, what we're seeing is an upheaval in this in the supply chains for global oil and gas. But it's part of a larger upheaval in global supply chains, and that is what takes me back a little bit to Commanding Heights. Is we had this three decade period of globalization, people being confident about it, incredible integration in the global economy, much more than anybody recognized. I think at least, I can't say for you know Britain, but certainly for the United States, actually COVID was this wake up call to see how integrated, you, know, you want mass, you go to China. You, know, you want medicine, you go to China. We didn't realize how interconnected it is. And uh, as you say, now with chips, so all these supply chains have been created on the basis of efficiency, what gives the lowest cost. Now you're suddenly looking at it in terms of security, in terms of resilience, in terms of you know what are the risks of the supply chain. And if you go back to 2019, that wasn't happening.
0: COVID was certainly the wake-up call. Um, but but if you um, you also look at um, the rhetoric of the Biden administration. Um, the nature of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, this beyond the WTO consensus, Your, I guess it's kind of the China map, but colliding with the climate and climate technology map, there is definitely a focus on trying to disentangle these global supply chains. Um, Where does that lead
1: us? Well, it's very interesting because you could look at this Inflation Reduction Act and you could also say, and I think you're saying this, Michael, it's also a Compete with China Act and uh, and Rebuild Our Supply Chain Act. Uh, and uh, I think there's kind of a wake-up call. We did a study, spent eight months on it, on copper. And it was so interesting to understand um, that copper is a metal of electrification. And so much of the energy transition is about electrification. And uh, the dependence on copper, where does copper come from? Its supply is more concentrated than oil. And by the way, China has a preeminent position in copper, just as it does in lithium-ion batteries, just as it does in solar panels. And if you read the the, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, a lot of it is trying to change those supply chains. And the EU has done a report on minerals as well, they, they're not explicit about China like the U.S. government's ones are, but you know what they're talking about. They're talking about dependence on China. Of course, Europe, it, it, Europe I mean, you have to look at different countries, but you look at Germany, uh, Chancellor Schultz in 2022, at the end of 2022, led a big uh, delegation of industrialists to, to China, because, for, of course, for Germany, China is a very important uh, export market.
0: To what extent do you think that the competition, whether it's over copper or rare earths or lithium, nickel, they're just, there's a whole list of critical minerals, are they taking over or will they take over from oil and gas and historically coal as being the kind of key f- source of friction, competitive interface between these great powers? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't
1: want to over-dramatize it, but I do think, yes, I think that is... Uh, I mean, as you pointed out at the beginning, I'm here in Washington, what do I hear a lot? Uh, I hear a lot about, wow, the Chinese spent 15 years getting a dominant position in these minerals. And uh, how do we catch up with that? That's a very big theme uh, here. So what you kind of see, Michael, is almost as though the, the, the new supply chains for net zero in colliding with great power competition. How serious it gets or doesn't get, that depends upon how people manage it. But you certainly see that in uh, the language and you see it in in these recent pieces of legislation. And
0: we saw it a few years back when China tried to deny rare earth um, supplies to Japan, but that sort of they seem to have backed away from that you, you, I don't know if you recall that episode. Oh, I, I
1: do recall it. I was somewhere, somebody said, well, China's never played the rare earth card. And I said, I think they did play the rare earth card with Japan and rare earths You need them if you're going to make wind turbines and magnets and everything. Um, so um, I think that was uh, an alarm. Uh, you know, and then, I mean, that's interesting. Then the cost of rare earth came down. And I think that the you know projects that people are launching, new ones, never got off the ground. So I think there's clearly a competition there. I think we can point to the electric car, you know, because of course in the West we mainly focus on Tesla. And I have a great story in the new map about how Tesla came about as a result of a lunch at a fish restaurant in Los Angeles in 2003, which I will tell for just a second, very briefly. This young man, J. B. Straubel, loved electric. Movement uh, tried to convince uh, uh, Elon Musk to do an electric plane. He said, forget it. He said, electric car. He said, I like that idea. And JB went on to uh, be the um, uh, chief technology officer for 15 years for Tesla. And, and Musk said a couple of years ago, I quote him in the book saying, if that lunch hadn't taken place, there might not have been a Tesla, which is amazing to think about how the impact in the automobile industry. But at the same time, there was a movement towards electric cars in, in China, uh, driven by uh, an engineer who had worked, uh, gone off and worked uh, for Audi and then come back to, uh, to Germany. Uh, what do they call them? Returning turtles, I forgot what the term is. Uh, and so China was on that track of electric cars, not just climate, pollution, concern about import of oil and the vulnerability that comes from that, but also for another reason, because it realized that China realized it could not compete uh, with internal combustion engines. It was too late, but it could compete with electric cars and and really to become a major force in the global market for EVs. And those Chinese EVs are now starting to show up in Europe and they sell at lower price points. So, um, you know, I think we're going to see actually, and I don't know what you think, Michael, but uh there's going to be an, a focus in the next couple of years on this new competition around electric cars, and China is a very formidable competitor. I don't know if you see it that way too.
0: I absolutely do. I'm I'm put in mind of a um uh, there was a a, a BNEF conference about 10 years ago in um I think it was in Shanghai, and the moderator of the session, there was a very senior Chinese Lawmaker around transportation and our moderator um, asked by 20, I think it was 2030, what percentage of new cars in China will be electric, will have some form of plug? And the chap said 18%. And our moderator said 1818. And the chap said, no, 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 80. And there was a sort of gasp, but basically disbelief. And yet, you know, here we are and it's now 20% in 2022, uh, it's gone through 20% and maybe they won't get all the way to 80 but they're going certainly in that direction and yes, they want to export them as well.
1: Right, exactly. So they see that is as um, a major new market and that they will have a competitive advantage because of, you know, because they'll have developed that scale. And in and- the new
0: map, uh, pardon me, in the new map you highlight three technologies that you think will play a big role on what you call the march to net zero. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of work our way back to climate, but right. via the technologies. We've talked about one, which is electric vehicles. One of the, techn- one of the three that you pulled out was batteries, which is essentially, uh, you know, um, aligns with electric vehicles. Um, the other two were CCS and hydrogen. And do you still kind of are those still your top three? What is it, two three years up since you wrote that?
1: Well, I think even the IPCC says you don't get to the your 2050 goals without CCUS. And I know a carbon capture, use, and storage. And I know there's some people uh, who just don't want it or don't think it belongs there. I think it's still early stages. Uh, but I think you don't get to you don't get to your goals without it because the world's going to continue actually to use uh, oil and gas, I think, for longer than many people may think is the case. Hydrogen, um, I mean, everywhere you go in the world, Michael, you know this, everywhere you go, there's hydrogen euphoria, that hydrogen is gonna do it, and you have these companies that have great engineering execution uh, uh, scale capabilities, You know, oil and gas and other industries, Uh, now really gearing up to make a major commitment. And certainly uh, in Europe, Germany pushing hydrogen very aggressively. And the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the United States gives a big boost to it. One of the things, I mean, ultimately, I think the answers obviously on climate are going to be technology. And uh, our, our, our CERA week, which is our big conference in Houston, We've created a, a section that's as big as the conference itself called the agora, where you see the technologies and you just realize like a, a range of technologies that there's going to be things that probably we don't really see now that in 10 or 15 years will have a big yeah. impact because the incentive is so great and the momentum is so great. I mean, I go into this agora as I did last March and my eyes just, you know, many, so many different technologies. And you know, and you see people there, we wouldn't expect to see it a conferences like that, like Amazon and Microsoft, the tech, tech companies are there too. So I think we need to be, I mean, there can be negative surprises, and we've been talking about some of them. The positive surprises, I think, will be on technology. But, you know, I cite hydrogen. You have a very differentiated view of hydrogen and have given a lot of thought, and I think your hydrogen ladder is one very interesting way to look at it.
0: I sort of feel like most days I'm in what I would call the hydrogen cage fight, you know, where, um, where there's, there's some people who think hydrogen, uh, you know, will be used for everything. And then I'm trying to sound a note of caution. And I, I was called, um, a couple of days ago, I was called a hydrogen denier, which I found kind of funny <laughs> and kind of offensive, because that's- certainly Yeah, not well, what I, I think am. that whole use of of the word denier, I, intre- I think the
1: whole use of the word denier, because it's really a play on Holocaust denier, probably should be taken out of the vocabulary.
0: You know what? Let me tell you, I never use the word because it is an attempt to, to push somebody out of a discussion um, by analogy with other discussions and, and the Holocaust. Discuss- I mean, it's complete. I, I agree with you. I completely agree. It's an inappropriate word. Uh, I chose not to be too upset about being called a hydrogen, a hydrogen denier. I, um, I
1: mean, I mean, how could I call you? I mean, you you see the role of hydrogen, but I think I find it interesting. Your perspectives is, you know, in a differentiated way rather than. Um, the answer right. to everything. And, but some people apparently find that
0: threatening because they're all in on, on hydrogen, but I think well, Michael, I wanted... can I ask you if your
1: observation? How did this momentum about hydrogen develop? I mean, I can see why, I mean, you have an oil and gas industry that handles hydrogen, that makes fertilizer, it's in the refinery. So it's not like you have to invent something, but how did it get this kind of incredible um, Momentum bandwagon. Well, look, there's a, a fantastic book, which
0: probably can give more answers than I ever call or could, called Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it charts I, I bubbles it the from the two I have it in the other bubble bubble room. The South.
1: <laughs> it's a, I have it in the other room. I keep it, it out. Exactly,
0: maybe we, maybe our homework will be to reread it. I think there's a few things. I think there's something intellectually very attractive about you know a molecule that burns, becomes water, um, I think it was positioned as a saviour technology in the 1970s, particularly in Japan. It was the only way they could see to continue to power their economy, and some of those, you know, brilliant young engineers are now still running large chunks of um, uh, of Japanese uh, politics and, and engineering. Um, and I think that there are there are also. Um, there is also a—I a, a, don't know—I'm not sure if I should use the word cynical, but you know, there is a huge amount of money being spent by lobbying organizations. The Hydrogen Council spending, you know, tens of millions buying the best possible research that money can buy from McKinsey, and then promoting this vision, which just doesn't bear systems thinking. For instance, you know, how much hydrogen you can actually, how much liquid hydrogen you can actually get to an airport or how big the fuselage of a hydrogen right. plane would be. And when you yeah. start to sort of push it, it doesn't make sense, well, but they're spending huge amounts of money right, on And it. then there's a
1: practical question. Well, first of all, obviously it's a very small molecule, so it has to be managed differently. But the thing that strikes me, I mean, when people ask me about hydrogen, I said, is, you know, is it gonna have a big impact or not? I say, we won't know for two or three years, you know, because it's yeah. still, we're still in, in that phase. And one thing that people, you know, I was talking to the CEO of one of the major European energy companies who said he went to his industrial base in his country and said, we can offer you hydrogen. And they said, well, can you also give us new valves, new pipes? Because I think there's an infrastructure question about, you You know, you have to re-engineer a lot of things to use it, but, but there's a lot of momentum.
0: it's to a certain extent you can re-engineer so you can you can upgrade the pipes the valves the pumps what i'm fascinated somebody has to pay
1: for that though
0: you have to pay but but you know but we get smart and the costs come down i'm fascinated that people don't realize just how bulky hydrogen is so to carry the same amount of energy in hydrogen as you do in lng is two and a half times as big right well
1: that's i mean when doesn't yeah, one forgets that why oil and gas uh, are attractive is because they have a lot of compact energy. But that's right. It's the sweet spot
0: of gravimetric and volumetric energy density. There's a sweet spot, and hydrogen's out here, um, and batteries, of course, at the other end. So, but um, what I, I want to come back to these three choices because what you didn't highlight. You didn't say, well, let's have five choices and include renewables and nuclear.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, we actually did a study, which I think I cited this paper we did for Breakthrough Energy in 2019. And we had a whole host of technologies, including things that don't really make the list, like building technology, building, making buildings more efficient, your house. It, is more you know can be more efficient and so my heat pump i'm obsessed with heat pumps yeah so that there there's a lot of uh you know when i the first book i did on energy was actually at the harvard business school called energy future now it's long past but the part i did was energy efficiency and i've always been i've been always obsessed with energy efficiency and think it's the underestimated energy resource and we don't think about you know um that uh, being more efficient can actually be one of the most important technologies. But I think the, ones, the other two that you talked about, obviously, I mean, it's amazing. In, in the quest, the, the middle book of what you call the trilogy, I got really interested in the question of, you know, where did modern solar and modern wind come from? And they're both really industries that emerged or businesses or technologies that emerged in the 70s and 80s, and it took about three decades to really bring the cost down. But the solar revolution, the cost, the 90% drop in solar, I mean, there may be a shale revolution. There's certainly a solar revolution.
0: There's a line, if I might, that, uh, from the, the new map, which made me smile, right? And if I, if I just read it to you, you said... Um, the map hardly assures us a straight line for disruptions will, with some frequency, inevitably redirect the path. And you then give a few examples. The shale revolution was not anticipated, nor was the financial crisis, the Arab Spring, the nuclear accident at Fukushima. And then you say, nor the rebirth of the electric car, which I think it's fair to say before 2010 and Elon Musk you know, was not foreseen. But the next one, nor the plummeting in the costs of solar and, of course, You know what I've been doing since 2004 is essentially betting on the plummeting of the costs of solar. So that one did make me smile,
1: I will admit. Well, I think
0: that's the one
1: that, uh, you know, I mean, you saw it coming. Most people didn't see it coming. And it's still a question, you know, how much of the, the advance in technology and how much Chinese manufacturing scale and skill. And, you know, someday I would love to see somebody explore it? Is it just the improvement? Is there management of their supply chains? I mean, what would you attribute? So let me turn the question around to you, Michael. Just what, I mean, what, what do you think the elements were that that brought solar down?
0: I think if I, if, if I look back at, you know, I had great fortune because early in my career, by a complete coincidence, I calculated a lot of learning curves. This is before I went to business school, we're talking 1986, I was, cal- I was doing log, log and doing experience curves. And so when you look at solar, which is a material science, it's not mechanical engineering, it's material science. And, and, um, and then the controls of solar are, of course, software. You can make a power station of a million roofs, but you can only do that because of software. And the software and network benefits are are also, you know, they're even more powerful than material science learning curves. So for me, it was always kind of, I don't want to say obvious, but it was just a Moore's law technology. Wind less so because it's mechanical engineering, um, but I could see that wind would come down as well. I think what happened was that it wasn't that it suddenly got cheaper it was just plugging away down that curve and then it reached a certain break point you know i can't i can't tell you how many times i was asked when will renewable energy be grid uh, competitive I, I was asked that every day from 2004 to 2015 and then the question went away the answer is 2015 and there was this kind of psychological readjustment where people saw renewables as cheap but the underlying cost curve i think was fairly continuous
1: but and with wind it was different i mean wind, the cost of wind wind is scale isn't it it's well wi- wind is scale.
0: Up. it's very different in its mechanism it's not the material science it's higher uh, turbines hub heights it's better aerodynamics it's it's better planning of the um the use of the wind harvesting of the wind more efficiently but again it is it is a learning uh, the Learning curves, encompass they bring in technology, they bring in scale, they bring in cost of capital, they mush it all together and you get these curves which are quite reliable. Wind's an interesting one because what was happening was the turbines were remaining very expensive but what we didn't all notice was that their output, their yield factors were going up and so the benefit was not in the cost of the turbine but it was in the cost of the electricity.
1: Right. Now, I guess with, with Dad, wind... We should
0: we should write a book
1: about this together. <laughs> well, it is very interesting to say, how did this actually happen? I mean, the qu- question about wind is, <clears throat> and I think we've seen at least a, recently a little upturn in the price of solar, um, whether, whether the mater- the competition for the, for the inputs into wind, you know, let's take that, whether we're going to see, uh, as with electric cars and everything, if you if everybody rushes to the same side of the ship at the same time, does it does yep. it tip? And are we going to see the costs of the inputs going up? Obviously, with wind, particularly offshore wind, you have supply chain issues. Uh, some of which are legal. Whether you know, can you can a, a ship you know that does? If you have a non U.S. crew, can it work in U.S. waters uh, on putting up a wind turbines. I mean, so some of these are uh, jurisdictional issues, but I think that will be one question of whether we're going to see not on solar, but on wind, whether there'll be cost pressures that now come from trying to go to scale.
0: I I think um, we're going to see some very difficult years. The supply chain constraints are very real. They're very real in batteries as well, but ultimately there is no shortage of the you know, all of the materials you need, whether it's electric vehicles or uh, um, wind or solar, there's the rare earths are not really rare. So I think no. ultimately I've, yeah. I'm very confident we'll get back to the
1: the, I the, mean, the cost here's, curve. Here's what, we'll go back to our copper study. What, as I said, it, copper is more concentrated than oil and uh, two countries, Peru and Chile, 38% of world copper, and then you have a, an, an issue called, which a mentor of mine called the obsolescing bargain that you go in, uh, Liebrich Mining goes in and spends $6 billion to build a mine and open a new mine. Then the government changes uh, in that country. And they say, well, you may have seen it as risky, but now it's produced, it's not risky anymore. And by the way, the commodity price has gone up. We want more. And therefore Liebrich Mining you know, struggles with that and says well we're not going to invest anymore in country X because uh, because they've changed changed the terms so you know an electric car is two and a half times more copper than a conventional car so there that gets us back into politics and geopolitics again right so then we're back to the friction points
0: between the between the great powers but I want to that, that's actually a good segue to a question that i have you've got these maps and you've listed you know you've got the us map the russia map the china map the middle east map the road map the climate map um to what extent though are they maps of the terrain as it is versus a map of the future i mean because in a few cases you it, it feels to me like you say you know and this is going to be the conflict it's going to be climate versus energy security, which is a kind of map. It helps you to understand something, but it doesn't tell you. It's kind of here be dragons type map, not and this is what to do type map. Well, yeah, I think um,
1: I think the map, I think the China map is one that I would really recommend people read, because I think that's very forward looking and it kind of points to uh, where the world is. the world is going uh and i think if you want to think about the big issues that will dominate once you know i, I think that chapter i think the other one that's forward looking and is very much in your bailiwick is climate map and the question about the energy transition because i you know everywhere in the world you know even more than hydrogen which you heard that the two words are energy transition and so looked at this energy transition Realize this energy transition is not like any energy transition before. I did something very bold in the book. I said that the energy transition began in uh, January of 1709 when a English metal worker figured out you can make coal uh, iron better using coal than wood. But those energy transitions were really energy additions, you know, as you know, and they unfolded over a long period of time. To say in a quarter of a century, you're going to change the energy foundations of a hundred trillion dollar economy. I think one has to approach that with at least a little bit of modesty. There'll be surprises on the upside, uh, you know, and particularly in technology, which you've been so focused on, Michael. But there'll also, you know, they're going to be, as the title of a piece I have in a new. Uh, Magazine from the IMF. You know there are going to be some bumps in the road on the way to energy transition, and one of them is the difference in perspective between the developed and the developing countries.
0: Are you? Are you? If I just go one level below, are you essentially saying we're not going to have that? All these marvelous ideas of transition that they're not going to happen, or that they're not? Are you? Will you? You know? Will you? Instead of saying, "I think, oh, I think we the direction, cautious, think the it's direction kind of, is, is it not going to happen."
1: I think the direction is clear. It's going to, you know, we are going to move in that direction, and ultimately, again, it will be technology that really drives it. I think, um, and innovation that drives it. Uh, I think the notion of the specific timing—that there is a magic date—is uh, something that you have to stand back and just say, "Is that really realistic? Is it doable?" Uh, Are you going to, you know, the energy crisis that we've been in began six months before the Russians invaded Ukraine. Are we going to have a series of uh, of uh, shortages and and what I call preemptive underinvestment, which will lead to a backlash and uh, uh, among publics and uh, you know? So I just think it's you know to pilot a hundred. Trillion dollar economy and sail. Oh, we'll just make it all sail through smooth seas. I think it's just uh, it's not the way history works. I mean, who saw COVID? At what we that sentence you saw? Who saw the Russian? You know that this war would go on in Ukraine. I mean, what else is going to happen that is going to come along? And so all I'm saying is, you know, the direction is. I think direction is very clear, um, but a little bit of modest, I think a little bit of modesty in terms of knowing how one is going to um, make one's way and be prepared for uh, setbacks and challenges.
0: The question that raises though is, what what do you say to those people who say, look, Nature is not going to negotiate. Nature doesn't care about Ukraine wars. They don't care about. Um, they don't care about. It. Nature doesn't care. You know, the climate doesn't care about energy poverty or any of this. What 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 the climate will do is what the climate will do, and that is such a pressing urgency that something must give. How do you respond to that? Well,
1: I think these are very difficult questions. But I would point out when everybody says 2050, China says 2060. India says 2070, you're looking at almost 40% of emissions. So how can you say that the world is going to be in 2050 is going to be at this level when the two two of the three biggest emitters are saying we're not actually in that game? So, you know, I just don't know how you put those pieces together. I had uh, Bill McKibben, father of the divestment
0: movement on this show, and I asked him, Uh, He'd been arrested numerous times for his protests, and I asked him kind of in a nice way why he'd never gone over to China and been arrested there. Um, And he's very articulate. He gave a brilliant answer, as you'd expect,
1: but he didn't really answer the question. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think, you know, I'm sorry, China is uh, decided, you know, uh, Xi Jinping talks about the China dream. Uh, You know, China is is not going to, uh, China's going to do what China wants to do. And they're not, you know, they're, they're, I mean, look at how differently they're managing the pandemic. And so, you know, I don't think Brussels, the EU is going to be able to um, dictate to China what it does.
0: I want to finish, if I might, because I'm aware of time. Um, You spent a lot of time in, India in fact you work on a you're you're, a, you're the only non-Indian on a very eminent panel there and also the Middle East shorthand for a number of oil and gas producing countries. Could you summarize and it may be that this is the Middle East map plus the India map, but can you summarize in a sense their side of this discussion about the urgency of climate action and how it plays out against energy security
1: or energy provision? Wow. Well, I think we let's differentiate. India's yeah. 1.4 billion people; uh, its per capita incomes are maybe one fifteenth or one twentieth the per capita incomes of Europe. So they have other priorities, which is poverty reduction. For them, the energy transition is getting people moving from burning wood and waste to using LPG. So the message I've gotten from India is that there's not a single energy transition; there are energy transitions. So. Big commitment, big commitment to renewables India from, from the Modi government. Uh, big commitment to hydrogen, Michael, as you well know. Uh, but also building a $60 billion natural gas uh, distribution system. So their answer is that there are multiple paths. And they have priorities. Climate's a priority, but so is poverty, so is health, so is rise, raising incomes. So they're just looking at it differently. And they and I... We're in a project now called uh, Energy a- Asia, and uh, where the Southeast Asian countries say we need natural gas, uh, that we need it to back out coal. And if you want to really have a big impact on emissions, back out coal quickly, which we can do with gas. The Middle East, um, really, um, you know, we're talking Saudi Arabia and the UAE, Abu Dhabi, and it's interesting to me. Uh, Abu Dhabi established Mazdar in 2007 to work on renewable energy and they're now, I think, one of the biggest renewable energy developers in the world. Mm -hmm. So they've gone down two tracks, uh, uh, expand production uh, capability, because they see that declining elsewhere in the world and the world will still need oil, and also saying we're going to put in the cheapest solar energy in the world and we're going to promote those technologies. So I think it's a very different voice now, I mean, let's say Saudi Arabia on these issues than seven or eight years ago. I mean, really, uh, and I think you, you see that, uh, that they say there is an energy transition and we'll be part of that. By the way, we'd like to be a major producer of green hydrogen, which we will send to Europe. Uh, but on the other hand, saying there's also the world's going to continue to need oil and gas and so we're going to continue to, we'll produce it because the production it can go down elsewhere. I do see a big difference
0: between you know Abu Dhabi, um, the Emirates going to be the host of cop twenty eight next year., yes. and I've worked I actually been working with them since about two thousand and seven when they set up Mazda. And I guess you know they have always, at least, in my experience, been pushing very hard for solutions to climate. But Saudi is very much seen as one of the countries that has pushed back. So most recently in el Sheikh, it generally understood that it was Saudi that wanted the phasing out and the phasing down, and, and uh, they want things called low carbon rather than clean and all that sort of thing. So, you know, Saudi is very much seen as a as, as the resisting action on climate, whereas Abu Dhabi is not.
1: Well, I think I think that's I think that's shifting. I think they're engaged in it. I think they're putting a lot of money into technology, a lot of money into venture capital uh, to be a player, a different perspective. But I think there is a, you know, there is the argument that the issue is not carbon, the issue is emissions. And I, I hear that around the world, that the real question is to address emissions. Now, people are saying that, you know, we have the lowest carbon barrels and so forth. On the premise of the world, is still going to use a lot of, you know, again, people may not want to hear it, but at least probably world oil demand is probably going to increase for about another decade or so, I think natural gas demand for another decade beyond that. And therefore those supplies will come from somewhere. But it becomes very important to then how do you address the emission side of it? And uh, I think that will be uh, obviously that will be a very major focus. And I think COP28 will be, you know, that question there is, you know, I mean it goes back to your earlier question, what's the role of the carbon capture? What can it really contribute to the whole picture? And and how do you how do you advance it as a technology and get to scale?
0: Final question: Will there be another uh, edition of the new map, looking at some of these sort of going more and more granular, or is there going to be a a, a new I don't know a new new map? Another right. so the well, uh, the trilogy think, becomes five, becomes six, becomes seven. Yeah,
1: yeah, I don't know what the word is when you get up into that number. What uh, I forgot my Latin. I don't know what it would be, uh, but. I think the way I feel about it now, that I and you and everybody in the world is living the new map now. So it's hard to you know, see beyond it. I mean, so there are specific things that, that I, I'm writing and thinking about, but um, you know, I feel we're, we're living it. And these are very important, very tough questions that want to continue to engage in. at least try and make a contribution to uh, understanding and to clarity on big questions that will have a momentous impact on the lives of everyone around the world.
0: I have always found that the world moves too fast for me to write a book. So I am absolutely filled with awe that you've managed to do it uh, five times now, three times on energy. Um, It's been an enormous pleasure uh, talking to you today. So uh, it it just remains for me to thank you for your time
1: again. Well, Michael, uh, it's really a pleasure uh, to talk to you. I have A great admiration and respect for what you've done and the voice you've been and the clarity you've brought to the discussion. And so uh, I'd look forward to this, this, our own dialogue a lot. And this has been a great discussion and uh, just shows uh, how much thinking needs to be applied in the future. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: It's entirely my pleasure. Thank you. Bye bye. So that was Dan Yergin, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, expert on all things geopolitics and energy, and most recently author. Of the new map. My guest next week is Bob Litterman. He's a founding partner of Kipos Capital and one of the great experts in the world on carbon and risk. Please join me at this time next week for a conversation with Bob Litterman. Cleaning Up is brought to you by Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation and the Gillardini Foundation.